stuff. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Hey friends, welcome to RUF. Uh, will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We, we do uh, pray, even as we just sang, uh, heart of my own heart, whatever befall, uh, still be my ruler. Uh, still be our Lord, ruler of all. And so, Lord, I pray that as we enter into tonight, as we take time to reflect in your word, that you would meet us in this place. Um, however it is that we come, whatever it is that has befallen our hearts, Lord, whether we come and we are anxious and depressed, would you meet us as uh, the great comforter, the lifter of our heads, the only one who knows our fallen hearts and sinful hearts and yet loves us with an undying love and would you give us comfort tonight or for those of us who come and life is good and we are excited to be back and get back into the spring semester uh, would you meet us uh, in that joy and would you take that joy and make it uh, center it and focus it on you that we might not be distracted from you or from your kingdom that we might not put our hope in the wrong things Uh, That even when life is good, that we would look to you as the giver of all good things and we would give thanks. Lord, some of us come and we are lonely and uh, it took a lot of courage to get here tonight. And I pray that you would meet us with your friendship and the friendship of this community. I pray that for those of us who are here and we feel like we have friends, that we would still be outward facing. And that we would uh, look for opportunities to love and meet and get to know one another in ways that are honoring and glorifying to you and encouraging to our hearts for those of us who are lonely. And Lord, some of us are here and we feel like uh, we've messed things up and we're kind of here, we're not even sure why. And Lord, I pray that you as the God of all grace would meet us and show us that uh, the gospel is not about what we have done or not done for you, but it is truly all about what you have done in and through your son, Jesus, on our behalf. And I pray that you would Uh, meet whoever it is that comes and feels like a failure and feels like a mistake and feels like they've blown it. Would you meet them with extraordinary grace and tenderness and kindness? Would you reveal yourself, uh, Lord Jesus, as the God of the cross who came to bear our sins, um, not to judge us, but to be judged in our place that we might be forgiven? So, Lord, I pray that you would take this time, take this, um, these few moments together, and would you, by your Spirit, work in us in beautiful and mighty ways. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Welcome to RUF. Uh, we are, tonight, we're going to, this semester, we're going to look at the book of Exodus, and we're going to be reflecting all semester on the idea of uh, finding your story in God's story. And I look forward to it. I love, I've preached Exodus years ago, and I loved it, so we're going to do it again this semester. And so that's what we're going to dive into next week. But tonight, what I want to do is kind of a kick, kick off uh, getting back into the spring semester. I just want to reflect for a little bit, whether you're new to RUF or whether you've been around RUF for some time, I just want to focus us and center us on what RUF is all about. And there are really two things, just two pretty simple things that are, that are heavy and that I hope for us are centering that I want to talk about. But that's what we're going to do tonight. And to do that, I'm going to read a parable Uh, One of my favorite parables from Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Uh, Jesus tells this parable. You probably, hopefully you're familiar with it. If you're not, uh, it's one of my very favorites. And it's just about really these two ways uh, that all of us are kind of 
you, you have to kind of live one of them. And Jesus gets to the heart of what the gospel, we talk a lot about the gospel in our EMF, and this parable is all about what the gospel does in us, and that's what we're going to unpack from the parable tonight. So Luke 18, 9 to 14, here's what Jesus said. He said he, uh, Luke says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's the way it always goes. When you're in a life of self-righteousness, you have to judge others because you're deeply insecure about yourself. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, which in the Bible is just a very, very religious person, and the other, a tax collector, which in the Bible, if you're familiar, is someone who was using others' money for their own benefit, and they were in bed with Rome. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's the twist part, if you're an M. Night Shyamalan person. I tell you, this man... The tax collector went home to went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. When I think about this parable, I think about a few years ago, my stepdad had a massive heart attack. And he is kind of a not he's a proud man, not in a bad way. But he was the kind of he's the kind of guy that had a heart attack, knew something was wrong and then tried to like ride it out which is not a good idea. So my mom basically said, listen, either I'm calling 911 or you're getting in the car. We're going to the hospital. They went, thankfully, they, she, he got in the car. My mom drove him to the hospital and he indeed had suffered. We're not sure when, how long he had waited with this heart attack, but it, he waited long enough where he had to be air uh, lifted from Sumter, South Carolina, where I grew up to the heart hospital here in Columbia. And it was a really scary moment because he was like hour from, you know, within hours of dying and I was thinking about just what a heart attack does. It was a wake-up call in my stepdad's life. They thankfully put stents in his heart. He's doing great, uh, but there was a, quite a bit of recovery. So he's doing good, alive and kicking. But I was thinking about that idea of a heart attack. And really what it is, is it's like the body's wake-up call, right? It's a, it's a wake-up call that your, your body, your heart is not able to get the nourishment and the oxygen-rich kind of blood that it needs and I like that idea when it comes to thinking about our, getting back into RUF for the spring semester, because I want to think about what is the heartbeat? What is the heartbeat of RUF? Uh, whether you've been around for a while or whether this is your very first time, I think either way, this is a, a, a good thing for us to think about. What is the heartbeat of RUF? And there are really two things that I want, that, that it is that I want to say to you, that I want to talk about tonight, <clears throat> that if we lose either one of these, our ministry should slowly wither and die. If, we, if we're off on either one of these, may the Lord kind of say good riddance to our ministry and let us slowly just fade into nothing. And here are the two things. Here's the first, is we are a ministry that wants to have a heart for the gospel. If we don't have a heart for the gospel, I don't know what we're doing. Uh, the gospel is a word that we say a lot, and, and literally it just means good news. And what I want you to see tonight is one simple thing, is there's a profound difference that I hope if you've spent any time in RUF that you get, 
is there's a profound difference between the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and what Jesus has done on our behalf, and what most of us have grown up in in terms of Christianity, which we could simply call good advice. So the gospel as good news instead of good advice. Think with me for a second at what I mean by that. Good news is something, it's an announcement that comes to you that's totally outside of you, but that changes everything for you. That's what the gospel is. It's good news, not good advice. Good advice is something that someone tells you that you therefore are invited to do. But good news is something that is totally separate from you, apart from you, that comes to you and changes everything, but it has nothing to do. You didn't do anything to accomplish it. Let me unpack it for a second. Let's imagine for a second that I said, I've got some really good news for you. And there are three different ones that I want to go with. What if I said to you, I've got, really good, I've got great news for you. That dream grad school, guess what? You got in. And you'd be like, that's amazing. That kind of changes my life. The one that you thought was a long shot, you got in. It changes your future plans. Or, or a second one. You know that, that car that you're driving? This is me. That car that you're driving that you're, my teenage kids are so deeply ashamed of. Like I drop my 13-year-old off every morning at school. Have you ever seen my car? It's functionally great. But the paint job is like long overdue for something. I mean, it's pretty embarrassing. I'm not going to lie to you. So I, I drive my, my 13-year-old eighth grader to school every morning. And every morning, almost, she's like, Dad, when are you getting a new car? She's like, this thing is a total embarrassment. And then she makes me turn down the music as she's getting out of the door. Um, being a parent, it's a good time, Gus. Uh, so, but imagine that's you, you're me. And someone says to you, we've seen how much wear is in your car. And guess what? We got you a new one. It's good news. Or think about this one. You know that guy or girl you've been crushing on all year? Guess what? A mutual friend says they're into you. And they've been waiting for you to ask them out. And you're like, that's incredible news. I'm going to do that, hopefully. Good news is something, what I'm trying to say is good news is something that you receive, that hopefully you celebrate, and that you enjoy, that you marvel in. And again, most of us didn't grow up in a Christianity that, that majored or emphasized this. We grew up in something, if you're like me, you grew up in something else. You grew up in something that was more like good advice. You grew up in something that maybe the internal message, that, whether it was said this way or whether you internalized it this way, the message you took away from the moment you became a Christian was, now I've got to get to work on what Jesus wants me to do. And here are the 10 things I need to be doing or the three things I need to be doing or the, if you grew up in a legalistic setting, the 100 billion things I need to be doing in order for Jesus to love me. Uh, in other words, the good, good advice says, here's what you need to do. Good news says, here's what's been done. Celebrate it. Enjoy it. Marvel in it. But good advice says, here's what you need to do. Uh, no one's unpacked this better for me than Tim Keller, a uh, guy that we quote a lot. And he says it like this. It's in your bulletin. He says, let's imagine this scenario. He says, let's say there's an invading army coming toward a town. What that town needs is military advisors. It needs advice. Someone should explain that the earthworks and trenches should go over there, the marksmen go up there, and the tanks must go down there. That's advice. And then he goes on, he says, however, if a great king has intercepted and defeated the invading army, what does the town need then? It doesn't need military advisors, it needs messengers. And the Greek word for messengers is angelos, literally angels. And the messengers do not say, here's what you have to do. They rather say, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. We just celebrated Christmas and we read the text. And that's what every angel says at the birth of Jesus, right? I bring you glad tidings of great joy. In other words, stop fleeing. Stop building fortifications. Stop trying to save yourselves. The king has saved you. 
Something has been done and it changes everything. And that's good news. He goes on to say this. Advice is counsel about what you must do. But good news is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. But good news urges you to recognize something that has already happened and to respond to it. Advice says it's all up to you to act. But good news says someone else has acted on your behalf. The heartbeat of RUF is to say there is good news tonight. You can stop trying to save yourself because the king has already won the battle. You can rest in the finished work of Jesus and what he has done in his life and in his death and in his resurrection for you. And it changes everything. Listen, that posture changes everything, changes everything. Two, two kind of applications to work this out, because this, y'all, is the key difference between the Pharisee in this passage and the tax collector. The Pharisee is still living a life of good advice. And in fact, some of the things he's doing are things that the Bible calls us to. Beautiful things, tithing, giving, giving money away, uh, pursuing, caring about justice, pursuing the poor. He's doing a lot of these things, reading your Bible, praying, good, good things. But the way that we do this, we mess it up in our lives as Christians, is that we, we get so focused on what we're doing for Jesus that we completely miss what Jesus has done for us. And living a life that flows from the joy of your salvation, the joy of the finished work of Jesus, which is why the tax collector is standing and is able to confess his sins. Why do you think the tax collector is able to not brag about anything that he's done, but instead to simply say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? Because he's heard good news about a God that loves sinners and has done something that their sins might be forgiven Two examples, or two kind of applications for this. Let's do two. We could do a ton of them. Let's take lust. So here's what good advice says. If you're someone who's here tonight, you're really struggling with lust and whatever that looks like. Here's what good advice typically looks like. Uh, You need to get covenant eyes on your phone or your browser. You need to disable the browser on your phone. Uh, You need to delete his or her number, right? You need to get an accountability partner. Uh, you need to stop going to five points for wherever it is that maybe triggers you to sleep around. You need to get off Tinder. Uh, you need to delete your Facebook or your Instagram. You need to talk to your pastor. You need to break up with him or her. There's a lot of good advice. And we as Christians sometimes lean hard into that. There's a lot of wisdom there. But what about the good news? Is there any good news for those of us who are lust addicts? Is there any good news for us who are really struggling tonight with lust and here's what I think the gospel says is, did you know that your, your lust is no match for the love of Jesus? Do you know that, that you, his love for you doesn't fluctuate based on your good days or your bad days? Do you know that Jesus actually took the shame of your lust to the cross and it was nailed with him there? Do you know that though Jesus never once lusted even in his heart, he died as if he were the lust addict that you whatever your struggle with it is or looks like at this very moment are deeply loved and forgiven if you're trusting in Christ. And did you know that God's love for you will outlast your lust and that God's plan is not to shame you out of it, but to love you out of it. Or let's take another one. Evangelism. I feel like that's something we talk about a lot in Christian circles. Here's what good advice says. Good advice says, hey, here's this incredibly helpful chart. 
here's this incredibly helpful booklet. Here's this incredibly helpful method or book or strategy or advice. You should join this club if you thought about being an RA. Uh, have you thought about repenting of your introversion, which is me? Have you thought about asking your friend or your family member or your roommate or your classmate to come to church or to come to RUF or to talk about Jesus? A lot of good advice. But what's the good news? Here's the good news if you're an introvert, especially like me. Did you know that if you could become a Christian, that literally anyone can? That if God could love you, who can he not love? Did you know that his greatest joy is meeting people in their darkness and in their brokenness and shining his light and healing that brokenness and literally raising them from the dead and he's inviting you to join him in it? That it's his work, his power, his way. Uh, Did you know that either ways big or small from simply loving a friend enough to ask how they're really doing to inviting a friend to RUF, to standing up for the poor and the trafficked and the oppressed, did you know that you might just join him in his work and see amazing things happen? And there's good news of great joy for us to join him in that beautiful work. Um, I know, I think a lot about, I don't know if you've ever been asked a question, who's the first person you want to meet in the new heavens, new earth, or in heaven? Uh, and for me, I know it is. It's not Moses. It's not David. I mean, it, Jesus, of course. Okay, we're assuming that Jesus is the person. If you don't want to meet Jesus, maybe we should talk about the gospel. But aside from Jesus, who's the person you, you most deeply want to meet? Uh, you could throw C.S. Lewis in there for me, Charles Spurgeon. You could throw a lot of people in there, but that's not the first person I want to meet. The first person I want to meet is a uh, woman named Sarah. Uh, when I was a junior at South Carolina, I was part of a fraternity and my fraternity would do these parties. And I'll never forget this one party that we did meeting Sarah. And Sarah, she was the, the freshman who would drink herself into a stupor and then do whatever any guy that wanted to take advantage of her would do. And this one party I vividly remember because it was in my family's land, multiple guys in one night took advantage of her in this way. And I didn't have the courage at the time to like rebuke those guys. I didn't have the courage that night to prevent those things from happening to Sarah. But flash forward, that's my junior year of college. Flash forward to my last year of seminary. We're trying, we're moving to do RUF in Statesboro, Georgia. We're trying to sell this old love seat and couch through this family connection. This couple who's starting seminary wants to buy it. And we don't know who they are. And so we arranged to meet through, this is before texting. We just called each other, which is its own adventure. Set it up. They came by and I walk out and there's Sarah. And apparently she had gotten converted her junior year. She met Jesus and Jesus loved her out of that brokenness. And in the way that Jesus works has invited her to marry an aspiring pastor They're in ministry somewhere. I have no idea. I don't know her, but that's the person when I get to heaven, I want Jesus to say, Sammy, I want you to meet Sarah because I want to tell you about the work that I've done in her life. And it's the work that I've done in your life. And it's the work that he's done in your life. This is good news for us. But there's a second thing I want to talk about, which this kind of flows from it. Is not just a heart for the gospel, but what flows from that, if you're getting that, if the gospel is taking root in your heart, what Jesus has done to love you out of your shame, to love you out of your sin, what Jesus has done on your behalf, here's what happens, is you begin to have a heart for the campus. In other words, you begin to have a heart for the people around you. 
no matter how unlike you they are or how like you they are. You begin to have a heart for the campus. Now, here's two things. That, so every year, part of what's fun, you know, I've done this for 12, 13 years. Uh, every year, especially freshmen, I, I typically see, and it's not limited to freshmen, two approaches that often, I think, especially Christians fall into when it comes to uh, uh, relating to the campus, relating to people that are different than them. The first is this, is just to be an avoider. Uh, here's what I mean by this. It, it's been, for some of you, ingrained in you, uh, sometimes by your church leaders, sometimes by overprotective, fearful parents, that you don't thrive in college, you survive college. And, and the best way to deal with temptation is to avoid those people. And so your plan has been, and, and believe me, RUF has struggled with this over the years, your plan has been to find a little Christian bubble to insulate yourself, to isolate yourself from those people, those situations. And you devote yourself very much like the Pharisee to good things, to reading your Bible, to praying. You, you ask Jesus to protect you from meeting anyone new at college who might be different than you. Uh, and campus life is seen as this temptation to avoid. And so you withdraw and you pray that Jesus will place you securely inside this Christian bubble in some kind way safely away from these mean atheist professors god's not dead one two and probably three scary non-christians and y'all this is the pharisee right he prays with contempt god thank you that i'm not like that guy and trust me i know my own heart well enough to know there are some of you that that is you don't literally pray that probably but that's internal that's in you that's in your heart god thank you that I'm not that person. And so you avoid. Here's the other one, though. You either avoid, you're an avoider, or oftentimes you're an adapter. And what I mean by this is you learn pretty quickly that even though it might have been kind of cool to be a Christian in high school, like my high school, private school, kind of Christian school, you weren't weird as a youth group kid. You could be the youth group kid and still be cool, but you learn pretty quickly at Carolina that this isn't high school and that maybe it's not so cool to be like a, talking Christian, a professing Christian. And you realize pretty quickly that if you're ever going to be in with the group, whoever it is that you long to be in with, that's not down with the Jesus thing, that you're going to have to make some changes that maybe Jesus isn't cool with. And so you study what the cool people are wearing. In my day, it was wallabies. What they're drinking, what they're smoking, how they're talking, what they're doing, where they're, where they're going, and you make yourself not a disciple of Jesus, but a disciple of cool, right? Your, your, your longing, your goal is not to follow Jesus, but to be in, to be accepted, to be loved by a crowd that wants nothing to do with Jesus. And I think we forget sometimes this was the tax collector. Like in this passage, he gets converted. He goes home justified. He meets Jesus. But before that, the tax collector is devoting his life to self-pleasure. He's using other people for his own gain. And he's in bed with the power of the culture. He's in bed with, in his day, Rome. And that's why the Jews hated the tax collectors, because they were down with the culture too much. And what I want you to see is that neither approach is approved by Jesus or committed by Jesus. In fact, both are called to repentance. The Pharisee is called to repent of his lack of love for others. And the tax collector is, is called to repent of the ways he's loving himself by serving the culture and following the culture instead of Jesus. And I think sometimes 
So what does Jesus commend? What does he recommend? What is he, what's the approach he invites us into tonight? And I think sometimes the way we've said it is to be in the world, but not of it. Can I say that's, that's okay, that's biblical, but I think sometimes that's pretty negative. So what if we said that what Jesus is inviting you into tonight is to be first loved by Jesus, that you therefore might go and love like Jesus. And that means you can't be an avoider, and that means you can't be an adapter. An adapter isn't down with his identity or her identity isn't securely placed in being loved and known by Jesus, the coolest person ever. And the avoider is not down with loving like Jesus, who was judged hard by Pharisees because he identified with those people, right? And so just a couple of words. First, to avoiders. Here's the thing I want to say to you tonight. The person you really need to avoid is yourself, right? Like this is the deep irony of the gospel. This is what the tax collector is beginning to get is that I'm the problem. That the problem starts with me. The problem isn't them. The problem is right here. It's me. Uh, I'm the biggest sinner that I know. In other words, to avoiders, I want to say your, your sinful, selfish, lustful, proud heart is the problem. Uh, it's not those people. But thankfully, Jesus didn't avoid you. Thankfully, Jesus and his love pursued you and he sought you out. And can I say that he hates your Christian bubble? Uh, that he wants to blow it up, that you might actually take the good news about him, that he has made real and true in your life and to begin to bring it in small ways or big ways into the lives of those he's placed you with. I always think about, you've probably heard me say this a million times, but I always think about uh, Johnny Cash, big Johnny Cash fan, and there's a show uh, that he did. You can find it, I think you can find clips of it on YouTube. It was pretty radical in his day, because if you remember Johnny Cash's history, he started as a gospel singer. Where's my guy? We have a Cash fan here. Yep, there, yep, there he is. Uh, so I love this story, though, because big gospel singer, and he had this pretty radical idea, or he wanted to take his show into into the heart of Folsom prison and he wanted to play it for these prisoners and his agent said there was this moment in his life where his agent basically as he was planning this said don't do this he said the Christians are going to your fans are going to hate you because you're basically identifying yourself with these rapists these murderers and Johnny Cash in this beautiful response said well if that's how they feel they aren't Christians that's not the Jesus that I know that's not the gospel that I know because it's for them is for the tax collectors, those who have blown it in big ways or small. And so he played this beautiful show in 19, May 1968. Um, and the application for us is, is to love like Jesus. It doesn't mean you need to host a concert in a prison, although that would be amazing if you're gifted in that way. I'm certainly not. But here's what it might mean for you. Who is it that you typically avoid? Like who is it even in this room that you're like, no, that's not my kind of person. I am not going to give them the time of day. Or who is it as you walk to class on campus that you're like, no, uh-uh, no, 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 maybe, no, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it's real for, it's real for us. Um, what would it look like for you to pursue them? What would it look like for you to love them the way that Jesus has loved you? And here's the thing I want to say to adapters. I love, this isn't original to me. But can we just, can I remind myself, can I remind you, you're not cool, you're a Christian. You're not cool, you're a Christian. Another way we could say it is, 
let's keep Christianity weird. That's my, this is what I love about Asheville. They have those shirts. Keep Asheville weird. Keep Austin weird. Keep Christianity weird. What I mean by that is your sole purpose of life is to follow Jesus, not to be cool. Now, you know what I'm saying. I've already said Jesus is the coolest person in the world. If you've not met him, or even if you have met him, you've forgotten. He's the king of the universe. He has all power. And yet he is full of the kind of grace that he is patient with someone like me and like you. Uh, I, what I, the good news for us is that you are loved by Jesus. He's the only person, literally the only person who has seen through to all the messed upness of your heart and my heart and says, yep, you're the one I want. I feel like I'm going to break into a grease sing-along. I'm not. But he looks at you, and he's not at all turned away. He sees you in the things that you have done or not done. And he says, that's the love of my life. That's the person I want to be with. That's the person I've set my heart on, you and me. And I think... There's a line that I love that a pastor will say is he'll say, when you have the approval of the king, who cares what the peasants think? When you have the approval of the king, who cares what that person that you think is the coolest person in the world thinks? So here's the application to be loved by Jesus. Here's the question for you, though, is where are you compromising in the name of cool? Or another way to say it is where are you saying this is no big deal? even though Jesus in his word clearly says this is a big deal. Another way to say it is, is where are you addicted? Where are you finding your identity in something that you know is not Jesus or is not something Jesus is down with? And the gospel says that in our idolatry, here's what your heart needs to hear and my heart needs to hear, that in our idolatry, in our sinfulness, we have substituted all kinds of things for Jesus. If you're like me, you've got a long list of things that you have and that you still are struggling to substitute for the only love that Jesus can give. And the gospel says, but in his love, Jesus substituted himself for you. That you might be forgiven, that you might be known and loved in an everlasting way. I'll close with this. Uh, so Beyonce, huge fan, huge fan. Who's not? Uh, maybe I'm, a, I'm a da- an adapter at that point. But uh, her younger sister, Solange. It's actually, I'm actually a, a bigger fan of Solange. And uh, she, part of what won me is she had, I don't know if you remember this, years ago, she, had, she got in a fight with, she like punched Jay-Z in an elevator, kind of came to fame through this, this fight with Jay-Z, which I respect the heck out of. But she's got this song from a few years ago called Cranes in the Sky. That's one of my favorite songs in the last few years. And here's what she says. I'm just going to send her hand out. She says this. She says, I tried to drink it away. I tried to put one in the air. I tried to dance it away. I tried to change it with my hair. I ran my credit card bill up, thought a new dress would make it better. I tried to work it away, but that just made me even sadder. I tried to keep myself busy. I ran around in circles. I think I made myself dizzy. I slept it away. I sexed it away. I read it away. I tried to run it away. Thought then my head be feeling clearer. I traveled 70 states. Thought moving around make me feel better. I tried to get, let go of my lover. 
thought if I was alone, then maybe I could recover to write it away or cry it away. And then she heard the song, it's called Cranes in the Sky. She says, but it's like cranes in the sky. Sometimes I don't want to feel those metal clouds. And when I listen to that song, I think about what is it? When she says all those things, I tried to do whatever it away. What is it? And here's what I think she's saying, whether she knows it or not, is that it is the suffocating reality that something's not right with you or me. It is that feeling that somehow we don't belong. It is that feeling that things are so broken in us and in the world that we can't do anything about it. And can I say that she's got the first half of the gospel, that you really are that broken, that nothing can make it go away. And the world really is that broken, that you're not God's solution to it. But that's the first half of the gospel. Because the second half says, Jesus came for the, for the it. Jesus came to take it away. Whether you want to call it sin, that's what the Bible calls it. But in the broadest sense, everything that's broken in me, was broken in you, was broken in this world, that Jesus is the one who came. And he came to defeat it. And he came to save you from it. And he came to heal it. And he came to fix it. And the good news is, he has. When Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, he's proclaiming the gospel to you that I have done everything that needs to be done for the healing of your brokenness, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the resurrection of your deadness, and for the life of the world to come. And so the question is, has he done that in your life? If he has, is it real to you tonight? And if it is, what are we going to do about it? And he's inviting us to celebrate tonight in the gospel, to have a heart for the gospel and therefore a heart for the campus. Let's pray together. Jesus, we praise you as the only one who takes it away. We praise you as the only God who loves sinners. We praise you as the one who brings joy into our sadness. We praise you as the one who brings life into our death. We praise you as the one who brings healing into our shame. We praise you as the one who, as we confess our weakness, as we confess our brokenness to you, that you are the one who knows what to do with it. You love bruised reeds and you came for broken sinners. And so, Jesus, would you lift our faces to you tonight that we might go from this place in the joy of the gospel. And we pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. All right. Hey, please stand with me. No more fitting way to to end this shindig than with a doxology. If you're not familiar, it is an ancient song that we sing together. And I'm going to start us out. And I'm not a good singer, so you're going to have to carry it. Here we go. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise
Cool. Thank you guys so much for coming to RE Hope to see you again.